Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, it, it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem, Judea, for so it's written, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star, where the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that, listening, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. May you be seated. <clears throat> Before I uh, kind of come to this passage today and we spend a little time in it, I just wanted to take a minute and say uh, a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to the 12 Days of Christmas um, reflections and songs that kind of came into your inboxes over the last 12 days. Uh, I pray that that was a blessing to you. Uh, it was really incredible. I love that we do that. It, it often gives voice to some people that don't always get voice. Uh, and so it was just really great. Um, every day when that came through, I found myself waking up, going straight to my iPad to find that reflection to start my day with it. If you uh, didn't get those, that means that you're probably not on our newsletter list. We send out updates every week just to kind of let people know what's going on around here. So if you didn't get those, then you're probably not on that list, and it's easy to get on that list. You can either do that on our website or just let me know today, and we can, we can add you to that list. All of those reflections, too, are in the sermon section now, just permanently on the website. So if one of the songs you wanted to listen to it again, or you wanted to go read one of the reflections, they're all, they're all there on the website. But yeah, thank you for the really, I, it was really cool just to see each of those reflections just be so intentional uh, and so prayed through. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful time through these last 12 days of Christmas. Of course, those 12 days of Christmas, uh, it culminated on, on Friday, J January the 6th every year is the Feast of the Epiphany. When after kind of remembering Christmas and that Christ came in the incarnation, after 12 days of sort of living in and celebrating that, we, we come to the story that we read in the Gospels today. This story that uh, has probably in our culture taken on a lot of myth. Um, when we read the actual story, you start to realize, wait a second, this, there's some things about this that seem a little different. I don't know if you have a nativity set at your home. We do. And we always set the shepherds and the wise men out around the nativity scene. But the wise men probably didn't show up at the same time as the shepherds. You read the story thinking, okay, give it a second. What's going on here? Uh, and so 12 days after we start celebrating Christmas, we get to stop and to celebrate this moment when this very unlikely group of guys come and meet Jesus face to face. Uh, the magi or the wise men 
were from the east, most likely Babylonian, Persians. So if you think of Israel's history, this is probably not the group of guys you're thinking are going to get to meet Jesus right off the bat. right? Uh, a nation who had persecuted Israel, the place of their exile. All of a sudden, these Gentiles, and not just Gentiles from anywhere, but Gentiles from this place that had been such a hostile relationship, come into uh, the Holy Land and, and, and meet Jesus. I think this is a story uh, that is so worth reflecting on each year as we come to the Epiphany um, for a number of reasons. Um, one of the most profound is that it reminds us that the good news of Jesus came for all people. That when Jesus came, he didn't just come for a select group of people who made some kind of cut or reached some kind of bar. He came for everyone who would come and receive him. Uh, and I think the Magi are very intentionally brought into the story to make that point really loud. But I also think it's a good story to reflect on today, and this is where I want to kind of focus today, because I think this is a story about revelation. It's a story about revelation, and it's a story about worship. And so I think there's some things for us to learn today in our own lives as we walk with Jesus, as we seek to know God more, but I also think it's a, a story for us to reflect on personally, but also as we think about those in our lives who are new to relationship with Jesus or who haven't come to meet him yet. Right? Here's these magi. They've not come into this encounter with the God who created them until this point. And we, many of us have friends like that. And it's a reminder to us that God's already at work in their lives. And he's at work at their lives, moving by way of revelation, and drawing them into a place of worship. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to spend some time looking at these two ideas. A good question to ask, and one that we often ask, and if you, in coming in the, in the coming weeks, some information will come out. We've, we're working on the details. But once they, they come out, we're going to start doing some, some catechetical teaching. We're going to do some catechism. So we want to invite you to come and to join us. And what that means is we're just going to spend time looking at the really the real essentials, the foundations of our faith. What is it that we believe that make us Christians? As Christians, what do we believe? We just recited the Nicene Creed. Some of you probably, as you go through it, you're just really in it, and you're like, yeah, I love this. Some of you are going through that Nicene Creed going, man, I have no idea what that part of it means. That's what catechism is for. We dig into the creeds. We spend time in those places. And one of the questions that I love to ask is we kind of start these places where we come in to say, what do we, who is God and how do we understand him and what is it that we believe is to start to just start with the really basic question, wait a second, how do we know anything about God at all? How is it that we, we suggest that we actually know God and that we know any, how do we know anything about him in the first place? And throughout the history of the church, and certainly theologians would point to this idea that we only know anything about God as he reveals it to us. That everything we know about God is that that he has shown us. That God could have chose to create us and then hide. You know, this, we could just be like, have you ever played, you play pinball? You know, when you sit there and you, you play pinball and you just kind of watch this whole madness happening and the ball is going around, that this, sometimes I think that's how we think God is. He created the world and then he just watches this ball bounce around, you know. 
And he says, no, I actually don't want that kind of a picture. I created to be in relationship, to walk with people. And so he reveals himself to us. He does it in all kinds of ways. And so the question becomes then, how is it that God has revealed himself? Or what does this self-disclosure of God look like? And there's a number of things that we won't spend a ton of time on. I'll just mention them quickly, and then if you come to catechism, we'll spend a little more time in each of these. But one of the ways that he's done that, the Scripture tells us, is through what they call natural revelation. We walk outside and we see the creation. I love that the Scriptures tell us that you and I were created in the image of God. And so as we interact with people, and we experience the throes of relationship and, and joy and love and these things that are hard to really articulate, perfect, we get to experience pieces of what it is to know God. He's reflected in his creation. He's reflected, I've got a, a brother-in-law who just is coming into a more and more like um, articulated relationship with God in this season of his life, but forever has had this connection with God in nature. It's always been beautiful to him. Even as God wooed him, that was one of the ways he did it. He could see the creator in creation and couldn't ignore it. Right? And so the scriptures tell us there's this natural revelation. But most theologians, though, would say that if all we had was natural revelation, it would leave us at a lack because we can see something and we can kind of see there must be an intention, a creator behind this, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. And it doesn't really bring us into active relationships. So one of the other ways, some of the other ways that God has revealed himself to us, we would look as the people of God to the scriptures to the Word of God, to the Old and New Testament, that we believe were written, yes, by men, but under the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we take the Old and the New Testament, and we read them, and we see them as authoritative, that they carry weight, because they are the Word of God to us. They are a revelation of God to us. Uh, as I was reading in preparation for the message, I love this. It wasn't even in my notes. It was coming back to me. Luther talked about the Scriptures as the manger in which Christ was laid. Kind of a cool Christmas analogy, right? But as we read the Word of God, Christ comes to us. He's revealed to us. It's not just text on a page. But there's a living God at work in the Scriptures. And so everything that we need for salvation, everything that we need to know about God is there in the Scriptures. But alongside the Scriptures then becomes an important part of Revelation, which we would sometimes refer to as the tradition or the church. That many people have taken the text of Scripture and they've read them in ways that they weren't intended to be read. That they've taken them into their own kind of private and quiet spaces, and they've interpreted them differently. Early, Very early in the church, there was groups like the Gnostics who used many of the same scriptures, but they read them in ways that they had not been given to them. So yes, we have this text, but how do we read it? How do we understand it? The tradition becomes an incredible, the church becomes an incredible gift to us. You see Paul saying things early on, like, I give to you that which, which was given to me. So yes, I'm giving you the content of these scriptures, but I'm giving them to you in a very clear way, how they were given to me. I'm not innovating on this. So the scripture and the tradition become real partners in Revelation. And then we have a couple others that we won't spend as much time talking about. One would be our reason. You know, God put that brain in your noodle for a reason. Reason. That we can think, that we can look at things and make sense of things. It's a gift from God. You were created that way on purpose. And so you're not supposed to check your brain at the door when you come to church. You don't need to check your brain at the door. What we do need to realize is that sometimes my reason is a bit more limited than I like to think. 
and that God might just be bigger. Right? And so I bring my reason in kind of under Scripture. I bring it under the leading of God and let him shape and teach me. And then finally, we would talk about the revelation of God through direct experience. The Spirit of God is at work in our lives, and He shows Himself to us, and we experience Him in real time. And many of you would have those kinds of stories. But ultimately, the greatest of God's revelation to us, the ultimate revelation of God, how do we know anything about God? He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. It's Christmas. It's the incarnation. When God entered humanity, and he lived life among us. And so you grab the Gospel of Matthew that we just read, and you read it, and you see him at work. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and following says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When you see Jesus, you see God. Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of, of the invisible God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The self-revelation. God said, I want you to know me, so I'm going to come and hang out. And then in John chapter 1, in the, the end of his beautiful poetic prologue, it says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. That which you have not seen, that which was a mystery to you, has been revealed. There's been revelation. We've seen him in the incarnation. God has come close. Epiphany, this season that we now enter into starting on Friday, and we will be in now until we get to Ash Wednesday and head into Lent, the season of Epiphany, it reminds us that this revelation of God, this self-disclosing of God to people in Christ at the Incarnation is good news for all people. That the revelation of God is not held back, it's not clouded, it's not fogged, it's not sort of reserved for special people who happen to find the right ancient trinket in some faraway tomb, you know? It's found by all who seek, all who listen, all who will pay attention and receive this incredibly good news. Paul then, speaking to the Gentiles in one of the other lectionary passages for this Epiphany Feast, it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. He says to the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus this, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in him one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby 
killing the hostility. Paul says to the Gentile church, listen, the, the, the division, the separation between Jew and Gentile, Christ has demolished it. In essence, what Paul is saying here is that all of humanity can be united in Christ Jesus. Even Persian, Persian magi are invited to come and be a part of this good news. No one's excluded. God reveals himself to us. How do we know anything about God with confidence? How do we know it? Because he's revealed himself. He's shown us. Now, I want to just teach a little bit here on God's revelation. When he self-discloses what that looks like and what it means. Because sometimes uh, when we talk about revelation in general especially in our Western world, when something has been revealed to you, if you said that, it's been revealed to me, part of what is implied is that you have it cased. Right? So I have had a revelation means you've got it nailed. There's not a part of it you don't get. And it, it's not a wrong use of the English word or concept. But when we talk about theology and the revelation of God to us, I want to talk about three different things that mark the revelation of God to us. And the first one is that God's self-disclosure, God's revelation to us as people is not total. Does that make you uncomfortable? When I wrote it in my notes, it kind of made me have to sit. Every once in a while when you're preparing to preach, you put something in your notes and then you stop for a minute and go, is that true? <laughs> Before I teach it, I, just, I need to sit with this for a minute and make sure I'm not confusing people. God came in his fullness. In Christ, we see the fullness of God come to bear. But let me put it this way. The Greek Orthodox would talk about this this way. The revelation of God does not abolish the mystery of God. How many people saw Jesus and they walked with him and right through his whole life didn't get it? Right? How many of us still today are just touching the surface of how good he is, of who he is and what he's done? He's revealed himself in his fullness. But our, our revelation, our, our taking in of that is not complete. We never come close to getting our minds around God. And I actually love that. I've said many times as I've thought about this, Sometimes I'm frustrated by that, but more often, I'm really, I love that. I don't want a God I can get my head around. I need a God who's bigger than me. So praise God that he is. When I don't get it, when I'm lost, he's not. When I can't make sense of it, he's got it figured out. Right? When I'm weak, he's strong. When I don't know what to do on a given day, I can turn to him. He knows what to do. When I can't see a way, he can make a way. That, that's the God I want to serve. I'm so thankful that that's true of him. And so to not be frustrated, but to humble ourselves in light of it, to recognize that he is bigger than I can get my head around, the revelation of God to us is not total. Luther put it this way, God's self-revelation is only partial. But then he says this, that partial revelation is nevertheless reliable and adequate. 
So God has not revealed himself to you in a way that leaves you stuck. I think when we turn back then to Matthew chapter 2 and the experience of the Magi, we see this at play. When these wise men, wouldn't it be great to go down in the annals of history as wise men? <laughs> and the, when they're talking about Chad, they don't even use my name. They're just like, and this wise man came. <laughs> I'm like, man, I don't know what made happen. <laughs> That'd be great. These wise men, these brilliant men, what happens when they see Jesus? They fall down. And I think that shows us this piece of revelation, that they caught it, that who they're with has been revealed to them. They, they worship, so they get it. On some level, they get it. This, this child is to be worshipped. But they also recognize there's a mystery at play here that overwhelms me, that's bigger than me, and they fall on their faces. They humble themselves. It brings us into a posture. The way God's revealed himself to us in that partiality actually is good for us because it keeps us in a right posture before him. It keeps us men and women in the presence of God, the creator. Right? And so revelation number one is not total. There's mystery that accompanies the revelation. Secondly, the revelation of God to us, his, his self-disclosure to us, is both informational and relational. Break it down a bit. God doesn't only want to be known about. God doesn't only want you to know stuff about him. He wants to be known. And when we talk about that, that's relational language, right? When I, when I, when I talk about, I used to do this with students, and I would... I would talk about back in the day, I would use the example of, of uh, Tony Hawk. Now, if I ever do it with students, I have to ask somebody before I start, who's a famous person they'll all know, because none of them know who that is. But when we think of that, right, I can say, someone might say, do you know this famous person, right? I would say, do you know Tony Hawk, right? He was a famous skateboarder, by the way. In the 90s, it was a big deal. And I could say, yeah, I know him. But all I would mean by that is I know stuff about him, right? I know he's a skateboarder. I know he seems to be like a nice guy. He's got kids. I know some stuff about him, but I don't know him. Right? Someone else might say, oh, yeah, I know. I met him one time at a skateboard event. Okay, well, you know him now better than I know him, but you still don't, like, know him. You can't run around then telling everyone you know him. People would be like, oh my gosh, here he goes again. Knows Tony Hawk because he shook his hand one time. Like, it's, you know, it's a bugs us, right? Now, if someone comes to you and says, yeah, actually, my kids go to school with his kids. We had dinner there last week. Ah, that's a different level of knowing, right? God's revelation to us, praise God for this. This is such a grace. This is such a mercy to us as the people he created. He did not only share with us or want to reveal to us stuff about him. He wanted us 
to know him. So he takes on flesh and he dwells among us. Certainly, one of the ways that God has revealed himself to us is through doctrine. We talked about this revelation of scripture and tradition, these, these things, this information, theology, it's important. We should study, we should know. Guys, you, day by day, you should know this better and better and better. No one's going to encourage you more than that. I'm doing catechism classes. Why? Because we want to learn, we want to grow. But the beauty of it is, yes, God has revealed himself to us in informational ways, 100%, and I thank him for that. But it doesn't stop there. When we distill our knowing of God to information or doctrine about God, we make God an object rather than a person. And he's not an object. He's not a philosophy. He's not a worldview. If we see anything in Jesus, we see that. When he sees blind men, when he takes time with women at wells, when he travels with the twelve, when he sits with Peter by the fire, when he goes away to pray and he prays in the garden, we see God is a person. That there is, there, there is a relational being there who longs to know us. Emil Brunner said this way when he talked about what he called revelation as presence. The God's revelation to us is never the mere communication of knowledge, but a life-giving and a life-renewing fellowship. The God's revelation to us is never just about information. It's about an encounter that can change a person's life. And so we come back again to the Magi. And if you look at Matthew chapter 2, verses, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, I love this. That the, these Magi come, and here's, here's what the text says. We saw his star when it rose. Now they're... Everyone kind of talks about the Magi, one of their kind of pagan like pieces, where they were like astrologers, right? They would look to the stars and they would figure things. So they're, they're wise men, they have information, right? And information that actually sets them apart as wise men. Right? We saw his star when it rose, but the verse goes on to say, and we've come to worship him. It's not enough for the Magi to know about Jesus. They are compelled to come and meet him. That should teach us something. But the Spirit of God does not only reveal information to the Magi, but he draws them into an encounter with the incarnate Christ. Come and see him. Come and hear him. Come and meet him. So the revelation of God to us, too, he doesn't just want to tell you facts about himself. He doesn't want you just to know about him, but he wants you to know him. It's not just informational, it's relational. And third, finally, the revelation of God to us is both general, 
this is, I'm going to use Luther's language. Different people use different languages for this, but Luther would put it this way. It, his revelation to us is both general and particular. He called it a twofold knowledge. Uh, let me read him on it. All people, he says, have general knowledge, namely that God exists, that he was created, he's created heaven and earth, that he's righteous, that he punishes the wicked, etc. But people do not know what God proposes concerning us, what he wants to give and to do so that he might deliver us from sin and death and to save us, which is the proper and the true knowledge of God. You know, lots of people have watched Tony Hawk on TV, but not many of them have sat with him and heard his heart. Some would call it this. It's, 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 this, it's this beautiful idea of what some would call the 18-inch journey. It's from here to here. I can know stuff, but there's a different, not, a, in general way, right? I can know that Jana loves me, but that would not be sufficient. She wouldn't be happy if it stopped here, and neither would I. And our marriage would be in a difficult position. But to know that, Jesus, that Jana loves me. I can know stuff about God generally. He exists. There must be a creator out here. I look at nature. I can see these things. But God's revelation to us, praise God, goes beyond general revelation to particular revelation whereby the Spirit, he moves in men and women's hearts, and he reveals himself to them in ways that they can know him and can believe in him, and lives can be shaped and changed when the revelation of God and who he is and what he's done and what he says becomes true for me. When I take hold of it in a way that it can shape and mold my life, when we come to not only know about God, but to know God and the truth about him. And I would suggest that this is what was happening for the Magi. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, listen to what happens when they meet Jesus. They've been traveling for days and days. They've been following the star. They've had general revelation. And then they come into the presence of Christ. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There is a dynamic relationship between the revelation of God we've been talking about and worship. Having received the revelation of God, and this revelation from God that, like we said, first of all, it's not total. It's marked by mystery. This revelation of God that is both informational and relational, that is both general and practical and specific. The Magi are moved naturally, organically, to a costly worship. The revelation of God right from the very beginning and then it just increases when they come into his presence. Draws them to begin, like, think of the cost. Not just financial, but everything that would be involved for them to leave their land and to, go after, to come to find him. It's costly. And when they get there and they fall down, they begin to pour out gifts, literally. 
before this child. He's still a child. But by the Spirit, they've had the revelation of God to know this is not just a child. And they caught, their worship is costly. It costs them something. Now the question that I would ask is this, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the revelation or worship? There's a distinct relationship between the two. And I see it here in the story of the Magi. I see it in my own life. But the question becomes, which comes first, revelation or worship? And I would suggest that the answer is both. It's one of these frustrating things, right? I, like, I don't know if you've ever actually had a conversation with somebody about what came first, the chicken or the egg, but it's painful. <laughs> Especially if the person's really into that stuff. Because it's a bit like the song that never ends. <laughs> it just goes round and round. So... But for us to come in and realize that there's mystery here, but there's a beautiful thing that happens in the presence of God, that happens in relationship to God as he reveals himself to us. One of the ways I would point this out to us is by coming back to the story we read and looking at the contrast between the Magi and King Herod. Both have the same general revelation. They have the same general revelation. Both of them have the same information about Jesus. Herod's maybe even got a leg up. He can go to Old Testament prophets and scholars and ask them. And you look and they lay it out. They go to the book of Micah and they bring in the prophecy and they're able to say, it's going to be in Bethlehem and this is going to be... He's got the same information. But... Because the Magi choose to worship, literally bowing before the mystery that accompanies the revelation. It's, it, it's when they fall down, it's when in response to God's self-disclosure to them that they choose the way of humility, that they choose the way of worship that revelation becomes for them not only information or doctrine, but as well, relationship. They enter into the presence of God. They begin to experience the revelation of his presence. And general revelation, information about God, it becomes particular. They come to see, to know God. If you keep reading the story, Herod just keeps on going in that direction to the point at which he actually takes the lives of every child to and under to try and wipe it out. That's his response to the same revelation. But because he doesn't choose worship, the tragedy of Herod's life is that he misses the fullness of God's desired self-disclosure to him. He doesn't come to know not only information about God, but the life-transforming revelation of God to him personally. 
Here's the invitation as we close today. Often we are plagued by the notion that we haven't had the necessary revelation needed to worship. Let me say that again. It's a cultural problem. It's a human problem. It's a pride problem. It's a problem that sometimes is like rooted or grounded in places of our pain. It's, it's rooted or it's grounded in places of our hurt or our disappointment. It's, it's a problem that takes on huge, gets huge fuel from, from the, just the incessant um, temptation we have to compare ourselves with one another. However it comes in our lives, though, we are often plagued by the notion that we haven't yet had the necessary revelation to worship. We come into the place, we come into the presence of God, we come into the revelation of God to us, but we realize as we go to worship, we realize, I still have questions. We come into the presence of God, into the place of his presence, we can place of worship, we realize, I still have doubts. I have disappointments. I have things in my life that I just, I, he's, I still, I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile these things. And it leads us to a conclusion in our own logic, in our own reason, that would say, I'm going to just kind of stand at bay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait to worship. The tragedy of that is, which comes first, revelation or worship? The reality of it is, revelation has already come. That in many ways, and in, and in, and in many spaces, of it, you wouldn't be here today if God wasn't at work in your life. That he's showing himself to you. But friends, Revelation will not continue, it will not, it will not grow, it will not continue to kind of like pour out in your life if you don't then in light of what you've already seen, worship. As we worship, revelation comes in a deeper way. As we, like the Magi, fall on our faces and begin to worship this child, do you think that those Magi did that because they got it? I don't. How could they possibly have got their head around it? They fall down because they've encountered Jesus. And as they worship, informational revelation grows to be also relational revelation. They go back and they don't just tell their friends stuff about Jesus, they tell them about Jesus. General revelation becomes particular, specific. The epiphany is good news for all people. And so the invitation to you today, because you are, you're included in that, you're part of the all people. That's why I love epiphany. Doesn't matter who you are or who your parents were or where you've been or what you've done, you're included. 
But the good news of Jesus is for you today. And the invitation that I want to give to you as uh, Adam comes back and as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, the invitation that I want to give to you today is this. To consider responding like the Magi did to what God's doing in your life, in your heart right now. Not even right now as in just this moment, but in this season even. And to respond in worship, I want to invite you to fall down and worship. where you're at, no matter how, I want to invite you today to fall down and to worship. To lay your life before the God who created you and to worship him. Because when we respond to revelation in worship, worship becomes the place of revelation. And I'll leave you with that today. I invite you to fall down and worship because when we respond to revelation and worship, worship becomes the place of revelation. So rather than like good Canadian, Western, holding, withholding till the revelation feels qualifies us to worship, realize, I, I think what I would say to you is you're never going to get there. you want to get to know the God who created you, you got to fall down and worship. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our